From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. It takes a lot of energy just to exist these days. And while I'm usually too jaded to embrace a holiday like Valentine's Day, this year I say bring on Cupid's arrow as a welcome distraction to daily life. So here we go. The fixed price menu is the restaurant world's very own Valentine's gift in February. They're perfect for the couple who want to let the chef and kitchen make all the decisions and, of course, do the dishes. But for those who want to stay home and say, I love you through food and cooking together, there are other perfect ways to light the candles and chill. Maria Ziska joins us with her suggestions for a table for two. Hi there. Hi, Evan. So I think that in these times when people are a bit stressed, Mm -hmm. that cooking together creates a kind of intimacy that can be romance or it can just be lovely and intimate. I'm a big fan of cooking at home every day, but most especially I vote for cooking at home on Valentine's Day because your home, it's not meant to be a restaurant. You can do things, I feel like at home you have much more freedom to do things exactly the way that you want to do them. So if you want to play music really loud while you're eating dinner together, then that's exactly what you should do. And if you want to make a steak and have it rare or super well done, then you can do that too. And if you want to go for a walk in between courses and come back and and have dessert after the walk, then then that's an option as well. So I, I just love the freedom inherent in cooking together at home. And as a former restaurateur who has seen the other side, mm-hmm. I can say that with great confidence that it's one of the worst nights of the year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody likes it. The least popular <laughs> among the staff. <laughs> to go out for dinner. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a kind of forced, you're like, you feel like you're forced to be festive and super mm-hmm. gooey romantic, which is like <laughs> yeah. so unrealistic. So, so when you think about having a lovely dinner at home, is cooking together part of what you want to create the intimacy, not just trying to prepare mm-hmm. the textbook quote gourmet meal? Yeah, I think so. And actually, I I kind of believe that some of the most romantic food is the kind of food that you can't get at restaurants, you know, the kinds of things that you make when you're at home and it's late at night and you're hungry. Um, there's a recipe for something I call chocolate toast, uh, which is a thick piece of well-buttered toast that you grate some dark chocolate over the top, you know, with a vegetable peeler. So you get these like chocolate sprinkles. And the the warmth from the toast melts the chocolate in a matter of seconds. And you finish with a big pinch of flaky sea salt And it's so perfect and so satisfying, and it's good at any time of day. I think that that should be the new (laughs) official breakfast of Valentine's Day. Yes, it's so great for breakfast if you wake up with a sweet tooth like I do. (laughs) Does your husband love to cook? Is he he really helpful? He loves it. Oh, yeah. He's a fantastic cook. Because I'm thinking about people whose partner, whether it be the man or the woman, Mm -hmm. or 
the the other woman or the other man, um, if they are not like super, don't have super chops mm-hmm. in the kitchen, there there are always jobs that you can share. I'm a big fan of sharing all the responsibilities um, and also being really honest with each other about what you like to do and and what maybe you you like a little bit less, you know, whether that's chopping onions or doing the dishes. Um, I I like to start with just finding what it is that you really like to eat and then try to cook that because that it's going to be fun no matter what, no matter how it turns out. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to attempt a souffle that you've never (laughs) tried before just because it's (laughs) Valentine's Day. You can make like roast chicken and potatoes. Yeah, I thought that would be one of my ideal Valentine's Day dinners. I would love that. Do you have special technique? Oh, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, there are all kinds of fancy things you can do, different ways you can truss the chicken and uh, tie the legs together or seasonings you can put on or, or, you know, butter or oil or whatever. But I like a really classic just salt and pepper on the skin. And I like to roast a chicken in a very hot oven. So I think like 450 degrees takes about an hour. And then I think the secret is you have to let it rest for 10, 15, 20 minutes even. Um, And then all of the juices sort of redistribute within and you end up with just the most succulent meat. And do you just throw the potatoes in the same pan? Yeah, it's so easy. And then what's great is the chicken fat um, kind of bastes the potatoes and gives them even more flavor and um, helps them crisp up in the oven. One of the things I love about a meal like this, too, is that you're free to eat with your hands if you want. Yes, I love to eat a salad with my hands. Lately, we've been making a lot of um, a recipe that I call salad for a winter's night. And it's kind of perfect right now when, you know, the the weather is cold. It's California, so it's not that cold uh, where we are. But um but it's a bunch of um, crisp chicories, you know, radicchio and endive, and and then there are some toasted walnuts and little pieces of soft blue cheese scattered throughout, and a nice anchovy dressing. That's the kind of salad that I love to eat with my hands because you you know the endive is almost like its own natural little spoon, and you can pick up a walnut or a little dab of cheese, and I feel like I could eat that whole bowl by myself every night. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be one of my favorite salads. (laughs) So so what would you have us make for dessert? Oh, dessert is very important on Valentine's Day. We will probably make Graham's favorite recipe in the book, which is the one-bowl brownies. And I love it because it's really you make the whole batter in one bowl, so you only have to wash up just a few a few cooking tools. And you can eat the whole pan. You can eat the whole pan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Maria. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Evan. That's Berkeley-based Maria Ziska. We've been setting the mood for a Valentine's Day dinner for two at home. Her book is The Newlywed Table. In a moment, we follow a woman on a string of first dates where booze doesn't play a third wheel. Stay with us. 
On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night, rancher Sally Gale was driving home in the rain when she noticed a parade of newts risking their lives to cross a small country road and reach the lake on the other side. She knew then that their survival was up to her. If you touch something, you have a connection, and you don't want that beautiful little creature to be run over by some stupid car or truck. Hear the story on Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Dating has always been stressful. Add apps, online profiles, and write swipes to the mix, and it's anxiety-inducing enough to lead one to drink let alone navigating an online first date, alcohol-free. Coming off a long-term relationship, Amanda Shapiro dipped her toe back into the singles pool with gusto and a self-imposed rule of limiting her alcohol intake. Was it a success? Do drinking and dating go together? Let's find out. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm good. I think you're a very brave person. (laughs) for doing what I did or for writing about it? Both. (laughs) So last year you embarked on a summer odyssey of low alcohol dating, or at least that was your intention. What rules did you initially assign yourself? Well, I didn't want to try to go no alcohol. I figure that would be impossible. And I also know, you know, I've tried going completely alcohol-free in the past and it always kind of backfires. So I thought it would be realistic to stick to like low ABV drinks because there's so many more of them out there these days and to just try to drink, you know, as little as possible. So did your dates ever notice that you weren't drinking and ask you about it? You know, The problem was that I just didn't even get to the point where I was really coming clean with my dates about what I was doing, because what I realized really early on was that there's this kind of like cultural stigma around not drinking to the point that saying so, whether it would be either before the date or during the date, it felt so scary. Like, what are they going to say? What are they going to think about me? Um, So there were very few times when I, when I actually admitted my project, I was kind of trying to do it in, in secret, which obviously is not a good strategy. Yeah. I mean, I think that would make it just so much worse. So um, take us through one of the particularly fraught encounters where these rules that you were trying to enforce on yourself backfired in a particularly spectacular way. (laughs) Yeah. So often it would, the problems would start with, you know, choosing the place to meet. So there would be times when I would say like, oh, well, let's meet um, during the day, like on a weekend. Um, Let's meet in the park. Let's take a walk. I would try to suggest dates that didn't obviously include alcohol, um, but it was sort of this, it was almost like a comedy, like a movie comedy, like how often alcohol would just sort of like appear on the scene. So I think one where I tried particularly hard is when I I'd made the date for like a Friday, you know, late afternoon. It was like a summer Friday. I was working from home and I suggested we take a walk and I brought my dog. Um, So I was like, you know, we're not going to end up sitting at a bar because, you know, I'm not going to bring my dog into a bar. So I've, I've forced us to stay outside. And then the the guy was a first date and he turns out that he had brought like a flask of um, (laughs) 
something. I think it, he brought a flask of whiskey, and we were sitting on a park bench, and he was like, do you, want, do you want some of this? Which, you know, I don't blame him at all. I don't think that's a weird thing to do, but I just was like, I, I just laughed. I was like, wow, this is, this is the culture of dating that we live in, where, like, it's just almost, it's impossible to avoid. You know, I just have to say that as an old I think it is a weird thing to do to bring a flask of whiskey to a date in the park. Uh, right? Maybe it is. Maybe I'm just jaded because I live in New York City where it's like drinking is just so much part of the fabric of our social life still. Like, I think in California, and I know because, you know, I'm in L.A. a lot. I have friends out there and like there's this whole term now, Cali sober, which is, you know, people are drinking a lot less there, I think, because honestly, because cannabis is legal and you have other avenues for kind of getting that buzz or that little mental relaxation or whatever, what have you. People actually use that term, Cali sober. I'm so yeah. rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, but yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. So I, I would imagine just having this conversation that eventually you decided to scrap the rules and make your way back to the bar. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And I think I didn't even have the space to get into it in the article, but I think it really shows you, you know, I never thought I was a nervous dater and I never thought of dating as stressful. Like, honestly, when I was embarking on this, like, these, this summer, I was really excited to be out in the world again. I was excited to be dating. But I think there is this sort of subtext, like, like neurosis or fears that people have around meeting new people. And especially in like a romantic context that you really are looking for the, that thing to smooth over the edges and whether that's alcohol or weed or anything, um, you know, I'm not immune to that either is what I, is what I learned. Just that sentence that I never found dating very stressful, I think puts you in a very unique category. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think the reality is I did. I just kind of pretended that I didn't, or maybe I used alcohol to feel comfortable when, when I didn't, when I didn't give myself that option, or when I tried to limit it. I realized, yeah, I actually did feel nervous or self-conscious, and I think that's actually a good thing to realize about myself. Um, I don't know. More self-awareness is always is always a good thing, right? So during this summer of dating. Did you did you find a person with whom you had more than one or two dates? Did you did you meet someone? <laughs> yes, I met. Well, I met a lot of people. I met a lot of great people. Um, I, there were definitely people who were great who were not people I wanted to see romantically. But yes, I did go on more than 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 just first dates. And yes, I'm I'm seeing somebody now who was one of those first dates. And was he an alcohol free or a belly up to the bar date? You know, he was um, somebody who was very tolerant and who I actually, I think by the second date said explicitly, like, I don't want to drink. And we met up in the park and had snacks and hung out. And it felt, I felt very comfortable with that. And even though he drinks and I drink and we drink together, um, I never have felt pressure to drink. And he's never felt that he couldn't drink if I, if I wasn't. That's lovely. I'm very, I'm happy for you, genuinely. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. <laughs> so when do you think drinking less became a thing? I mean, when did dry January happen? You know, and my job as editor of Healthyish, um, I've seen since we launched about three years ago, the site, I've just seen 
it become, I would say, the number one like wellness trend that I could point to uh, more than anything else. It's just maybe besides like weed and CBD, honestly, I think that people are just moderating in ways. They're reading more research, more studies are coming out. They're recognizing that drinking really does have a lot of health risks and the market has responded with like just tons of products from, you know, no alcohol spirits to like Amaro sodas to like, I list all these things in the article that have come across my desk and there are like literally dozens and dozens. So I just think that there's, there's just so much more out there to drink that's not alcohol. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think it's great to give people options. The thing that's tricky is, you know, now bars are jumping on the bandwagon and they're realizing they can charge $12 for a <laughs> drink that doesn't have any booze in it because <laughs> they use some, they use a lot of fancy other ingredients. So um, No, they're really just charging you for the seat. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's great to be able to go to a bar and have options and, you know, not have to drink a seltzer all the time. So I'm curious about the response you got to the article. Did a lot of people say, I, I've tried the same thing with the same really mixed results? You know, a lot of people reached out. And interestingly, I will say mostly women, it seemed, saying that they had also felt this discomfort and like fatigue with the fact that in order to date, you had to be drinking. Yeah. If you're single, that that has to be kind of part and you're trying to date that that has to be part of your routine and that the two seem so closely linked. So it seemed like it struck a nerve with, with people for sure. I think that a lot of people are just sober across the board or they drink and like finding that kind of in between is a lot harder. Well, it was really a wonderful article. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks so much, Evan. Amanda Shapiro is the editor of Healthyish at Bon Appetit. We've been discussing the relationship between dating and drinking. I first heard about Verju years ago when noted South Australia chef Maggie Beer started making it. At the time, it was used as another sour in the tart and tangy arsenal. But as time and palates have moved on, sours have moved beyond the kitchen and into the glass. Julia Sherman of Salad for President fame is here to tell us how. Hi there. Hi, Evan. So did you start playing around with Verjus when you were making vinaigrettes for your salads? Yeah, I spend a lot of time in the specialty vinegar and oil section of the fancy the fancy food store, so... If you tend to frequent high-end food shops, you will inevitably come across verjus, which will be seated next to the high-end vinegars. And so I had taken it off the shelf, curious about, about how to use it, and played around with it in cooking. I particularly like to poach fruit in it, actually, and use it for vinaigrettes and sometimes to deglaze a pan. Those are very traditional ways of using it. And then I started playing around with it in drinks as well. So let's talk about what it is. So the word verjus, verjuice, I understand is from the Middle Ages. It means green juice. H how is it made? So verjus is the process of taking underripe grapes that are thinned from the vines early in the season. So when the growers are out and they're in the vineyards and they're trying to encourage the vines to focus all their energy on growing better, more flavorful, juicy fruit, they have to prune the vines and get rid of the, a lot of the clusters in order to do that. So early in the season, those clusters will often just be 
left on the floor of the vineyard to rot. But instead of doing that, you can glean that fruit and press it and make an unfermented tart grape juice, which, as you mentioned, literally translates to green juice. It's so interesting because when I first heard about it, I thought, well, that's very weird that that um, winemakers would take some of their crop away, but it makes perfect sense that it's from the gleanings. And it's always a fresh juice. It's never fermented. Correct. So traditionally, it would be added. There would be a, much, a lot of added sulfur, and the sulfur would arrest the fermentation because those underripe grapes, they still are teeming with naturally occurring yeast and sugar. So even though it tastes tart to our palate, there's quite a bit of residual sugar in there. So the combination of sugar plus wild yeast, it just wants to ferment. So typically, the the people in the vineyards who are making the verjus would be adding the sulfur to arrest fermentation and have it be a fresh, tart green juice. So we're now in the world where the idea of drinking vinegars, and I mean, there's kombucha, um, isn't and shrubs. So it's it's not a foreign idea to use something that has a fair amount of acidity and start drinking it. How did you get the idea of starting to play around with verju as a beverage? It happened somewhat by accident. I was familiar with verju as an ingredient in high-end cocktails. So if you go to any high-end cocktail bar, they definitely have verju in their toolkit. I'm not a big cocktail maker. I feel exhausted by everything that's happening in the kitchen, and I'm not about to mess up my bar when I'm entertaining. So I discovered verju as a drinking ingredient when I started to slow down my own alcohol consumption. So I wanted to come up with fun and exciting ways to have something fun to drink and something to offer to guests that wasn't going to be super complicated when it comes to preparation and mixology. So you the, you, you got this idea of making a low-alcohol beverage with verju. Take me through that process. So in 2017, I was on my book tour for my first cookbook called Salad for President, and I was cooking up at Scribe Winery in Sonoma. So I was cooking there for their guests and doing a guest chef stint, and um, they make some verju at the winery. And we opened a bottle of their house-made verju, and it was bubbly, and therefore I knew it was slightly alcoholic, and it tasted delicious. And so it was really the answer to what I had been looking for as somebody who works in the food industry and felt like opportunities to drink were every happening every single night. And I felt like I was drinking too much and I still wanted to be able to enjoy the story behind wine, the artisanal aspects of wine and all that. So I wasn't ready to go cold turkey. So this fizzy, slightly alcoholic bottle of verju appealed to all of my senses. And, and um, so from there, I decided that there must be a way to recreate that that Frankenstein bottle. So I was about to say, was that bottle a fluke? It was. So they hadn't added enough sulfur, and so those yeasts and those sugars that were trapped in that bottle, it only takes one tiny yeast for something to ferment. So that the yeast and the sugars had a you know happy marriage in there, and all of a sudden you had a sparkling bottle of verju, and I guzzled the whole bottle down, and I was so sad that I couldn't have more. And it took me a year before I really moved on the idea and decided to, I could really make this happen. So to make it happen, you needed to collaborate with a winemaker, correct? Correct. I do not know anything. Well, now I know some things about making wine, but at that point, I was a consumer, not a producer. So 
I had that idea and I decided about a year later to reach out to Martha Stuman, who's a fabulous natural winemaker in Sebastopol, California, so not too far from Scribe. She she comes at it from a grower's perspective. She she studied agriculture and she grows her own grapes. So I just cold emailed her and asked her if she would be interested in working on this with me. And I described, you know, this vivid memory from a year before at this point. And we played, talked and played around with some, you know, different ideas and methods we might approach this with. And then we met at 5 a.m. in a parking lot for the first time outside of her winery and went and drove to Ukiah and picked a thousand pounds of grapes, just the two of us. And that was the first year that we pressed and fermented the Verjou. So because you wanted the verjus to ferment in the bottle, did you decide to not add any sulfates? Sulfites? What's the correct term? To not add any sulfur. So we did decide to not add any sulfur. We did a few different tests. So the first year was really an experimentation where we took a bunch of different approaches. Some where we produced it similar to a pet nat where we were fermenting it in bottle. We did some where we were adding sugar called a dosage at the end to increase the fermentation. There's all these different ways of trying to tweak the acidity level, the sugar level, and then also to arrest fermentation because while we were veering away from what a traditional verju is in its essence, which is an unfermented grape juice, we decided to ferment it. So already we were we were throwing the rolls out the window, but I did want to keep it as, as a low ABV option. So our target was 3.4%. And there's various ways that you can do that. You can do that by pressure, you can do that by temperature, or you can do it by sulfur. And we had decided that as a natural winemaker, sulfur is something she tries to avoid. So it's a low intervention wine that is is 3.4% and has no added sulfur. And the flavor profile, how does what's currently in the bottle of Juju, which is what it's called, how does that differ from the first year you made it? The first year we were working with dry-farmed Petite Syrah that we blended with some ripe musket grape juice. Dry-farmed grapes literally are dry-farmed without any irrigation. So they're only growing in California, which is not a very rainy state. They're growing with available rainwater. So that's a really old technique. And what it does is it forces the roots of of the vines to reach down into the mineral layers and really get some intense flavor. So then the fact that there's no added water, there's a lot less juice. It's very, very concentrated. So the first year was it was tart and I suck on lemons and I was you know you know it tasted great and if you mixed it it was a dream but it did leave that little bit of residual ickiness in your throat like you just chugged a gallon of fresh lemonade so the next year we mellowed it out and now we're using chardonnay and we still blend that with musket grape juice that's ripe and super aromatic and It's interesting because, like you mentioned when you tasted it, there's definitely notes of apple cider in there. And that has to do with malic acid, which is something that occurs in apples and in grapes. But during a full fermentation of a winemaking process, that malic acid disappears. But since we're only fermenting to 3.4%, you definitely get notes of apple or pear, that kind of vibe. I actually really love to use it as a, for a spritz. So I add, because I like the tart, I add some Meyer lemon juice or a spritz of grapefruit, some soda. There's, you know, play with it. But um, it's it's definitely 
got a little bit of apple flavor in there for sure. Because of my difficulty with wine, mm-hmm. how it hammers me, mm-hmm. I never drink spritzes, mm-hmm. but I think I'm going to try now. Oh, that sounds great. I will join you for one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Julia. What an interesting project. Thank you, Evan. That's Julia Sherman. We've been discussing the low-alcohol alternative, Verju. You can find her Juju at local wine shops, Domain LA and Helen's Wines. And on Monday, you can meet Julia in person at a Juju pickup party at Pop-Up Grocer in Venice. Just remember to order your bottle online ahead of time. After the break, a perennial good food favorite. It involves candy, pants, and a little naughtiness. Stay close. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The story begins with two longtime lovers. Their curious entrepreneurship in the food world has all the trappings of a Scorsese movie, drugs, an evocative soundtrack, and just the right amount of smut. Writer Gideon Brower has the story. One thing to know about edible underwear, those candy briefs you might buy as a gag gift that you can wear and also eat, they were never originally meant to be eaten, and they were never originally meant to be worn. We approached it as conceptual art and as a sexual parody. It ended up being just this gargantuan behemoth. It kind of got out of control. Lee Brady and David Sanderson are the guys who invented edible underwear. They're also a couple. They've been together since 1967. You'd expect something like edible underwear to have an unusual backstory. But the history here is way stranger than you'd imagine. Here are a few of the elements. Children's theater, cutting-edge food science, disco, Tokyo Rose, a suitcase stuffed with cash. This all starts in the early 70s. David and Lee and some friends were sitting around a big, rundown Victorian house they were renting in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood. And this will not shock you, they were a little high. We, we were sitting around smoking. Drinking any green spring wine, apple flavor. We were talking about colloquialisms, you know, like, go bananas. Puff the magic jag and just kind of put it in our minds. And I remembered that my older brother used to say to me, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. Like, buzz off. We are just howling at that. And then David thought, well, why can't you make them? Why isn't there such a thing? Now, I kind of doubt David's older brother was the first person ever to say, eat my shorts. And David and Lee probably weren't the first people to think maybe you could actually do that. But where other people might just laugh about it and then forget it, they didn't. It may have helped that this was the 70s. The early 70s, where almost anything seemed possible. But it also helped that Lee and David are the kind of guys who just try things. In their early 20s, right after they got together, they started a theater company called The Puck Players. The Puck Players. They turned a Nathaniel Hawthorne story into a musical with original songs and a fog machine. They took it to schools, including some in the Chicago ghetto. Some of the fifth graders would be 6'4". They'd, you know, throw things at us and stuff. We had a little white Volkswagen van. The puck players. They would always paint over the P and change it to F. That was just one of their adventures. Somehow they got themselves right in the middle of everything that was happening. We went to San Francisco to the Summer of Love and came back to the Chicago riots. They were entrepreneurs. They had tons of businesses. We did a Halloween show for a radio station. We were also selling 
Tibetan art. We'd rent out rooms, we'd buy vintage clothing and sell it to flashy boutiques. David was also doing a window display. We started having rent parties. You'd pay admission, we'd have punch made out of Kool-Aid and grain alcohol. They really were guys who tried things. And when they said they were making edible underwear, they weren't kidding around. Everybody thought we were totally bonkers. We bought trash bags. We had a friend, Christina. We would pin them on her and get a design that we would cut out, and then we would string it with licorice. The early ones were designed exactly like underwear. Tidy whities The licorice was the strings. You'd tie it on each side of your hip in a bow. The men's, we actually put a pouch in it. The design wasn't the only challenge. At the time, there was no product that you could cut like fabric, package, color, flavor, and eat. So they had to develop it themselves. We were experimenting in the spare bedroom with a potato starch and hydroxypropylmethylcellulose, which is an edible plastic. It took a while, but they did eventually come up with a product that was both edible and wearable, and they gave it a name. Candy pants. In 1975, when they'd made about a dozen pairs... We had a friend who had a bath shop... He said, you can put him in the front window if you want. Lee and David say, even though they'd gone to all that trouble, they still didn't expect much. But here's where a miracle happened. A marketing miracle, which may be a minor miracle in the scheme of miracles, but still, people spend years desperately trying to get publicity and attention for things they invent. And the way David and Lee tell it, the very first person who bought a pair of candy pants... A girl from the University of Indiana bought the first pair... Her school newspaper wrote about it, and the wire services picked up the story. It went around the world in 24 hours. And then all hell broke loose. I got calls all night long from England, Australia, Canada, Germany, and then NBC called and said, can you be on the 6 o'clock news tomorrow? Who knows why edible underwear struck such a chord? The mid-70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, in the depths of an economic recession, were kind of a grim period. And candy pants were just something silly and fun. Whatever the reason, orders started coming in by the thousands for a product that didn't really exist yet outside of Lee and David's spare bedroom. If you would, please, send us 12 dozen candy pants. And did I mention there were a few quality control problems? It had to have the right humidity and temperature, or it would just dissolve or get brittle and break. But they were can-do guys. So they got a factory. The Willy Wonka factory. Willy Wonka factory. We had giant decals of Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Pluto, Goofy, plastered all over this gigantic wall. We started hiring people. Everybody wanted to work for us. We were fun. We had parties every Friday night. Lee and David were in the papers. They were on television. Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins were watching Johnny Carson and they saw him talk about edible underwear. And they'd written a little ditty, and they thought, that's it. Let's call it Candy Pants. It was a wonder product. It appealed to everyone. Young and old, gay and straight, prude and libertine. Everybody loved Candy Pants. I'd like to order 36 dozen Candy Pants, 24 dozen women's, 12 dozen men's. Could you call us back on this and confirm whether you did receive it? We had banana split, 
cherry and chocolate. The doomed one. Not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> we came up with passion fruit. We did a mint one, which was green. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Division would not give us a trademark at first because they said the words candy and pants were mutually exclusive, but eventually we did get that. We had a guy come and he, he placed an order for a quarter of a million of them. We were like, what? We had a convent that uh, actually awarded them at bingo games. Motorcycle shops carried them. Nursing homes. Bloomingdale's, lingerie shops. Anniversary gift, a birthday gift. Really big for bridal showers, really big. We were selling about $150,000 a month in 1976. We were making a lot of money. We would spend it as fast as we would make it. You know, you're young. You're going to live forever. Lee and David bought a 7,000-square-foot mansion on Castlewood Terrace with a grand staircase and a ballet studio. They had parties, lots of parties. One thing to remember if you're trying to picture what their lives were like at that time, this was happening. Disco started to get popular. Donna Summer. And then, of course, the disco ball. (laughs) We partied a lot. We were generous, uh, I guess you could say. The 70s was uh, a really unique period. The culture was changing. Gay, straight was starting to meld. We were having a ball. It was just a ball. We weren't foolish, but we we had a good time. David and Lee still had a business to run. And the way they tell it, they were starting to encounter some problems. We would order like 9,000 pounds of flavoring, and all of a sudden we'd get nine pounds. The couple says they were getting squeezed by people who wanted to take over their business and sell candy pants to a different kind of clientele. These men would come in and buy a dozen pair and sell them in their bookstores that sold magazines like jugs. We kept them out of porno stores. We always thought of it as being innocent and a little naughty. Eventually, they found they couldn't get the raw materials they needed anymore. So they turned to an unlikely ally, Tokyo Rose. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate. Iva Tagori, the woman who'd broadcast Japanese propaganda over the radio during World War II, was now running an import-export business in Chicago. Anything from Japanese pebbles to candy. That imported candy was wrapped in a transparent edible film called... Oblot. Oblot. Lee and David thought maybe they could make candy pants out of that. She kind of warmed up to us and turned us on to somebody in Japan. So that's where Lee went. A little town that was a paper manufacturing company. I started using their mixers, and all of a sudden, for the first time, they started seeing blue, yellow, green coming off the rollers. And they started calling me magician. You're a magician. Once again, they had a supply of raw materials. We managed to keep it going. But knockoffs of their product were already turning up in porno stores. Lee and David say the stress of maintaining their supply chain was getting to them. They had to make a tough decision. It was nine years that we were, we were running it. They chose to sell the rights to their product to a group they'd rather not talk about much. We were at the lawyer's office on this, like, cocaine cowboy walked in. He was like 6'4 and huge, and he threw a suitcase on the table, and cash just flew out of it. And our 
lawyer slid under the table and he was so afraid. The bad news, Lee and David were out of the edible underwear business. The good news, they were rich. We drove around Florida for six months and lived kind of a rock starry kind of life. And then they did what they'd always done. Everything. We started up a product called Diamond Jacks. That's a cross between Cracker Jacks and playing the lottery. We had a, a gem in every box. So far, 28,000 boxes of Diamond Jacks have been shipped. Nine diamonds have been found and five are still out there somewhere. We came up with a breath freshener called Mighty Mouth. Edible paper with caramel pens for kids, dolls and toys for kids. I dabbled in doing figurative art for a while. He's in some museums. We've rehabbed five different buildings. One six flat and several homes. Lee Brady and David Sanderson have been together almost 50 years now. It seems like they've done everything and been everywhere. But they know if they're remembered for one thing, it'll be candy pants. It's just kind of become bigger than the both of us. I do feel like it's like our, our signature contribution to, I don't know what, um, to conversation, uh, I guess. We're very, very proud of it. It's taken on a life of its own. It just goes on and on and on. Um, we outlived the pet rock. For good food, I'm Gideon Brown. That was Gideon Brower. His brief history of the creation of edible underwear is a perennial favorite amongst our good food team. Next, we meet up with Jillian Ferguson at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. It is peak citrus season in Southern California, which means that all the tables at the Santa Monica Market are piled high with mandarins and grapefruits and pomelos and kumquats. It is one of the reasons we love Southern California in the wintertime. And here to guide us through this embarrassment of riches is Brittany Cassidy, chef de cuisine at Birdie G's in Santa Monica. Hi, Brittany. Hello, Jillian. <laughs> so tell us, how does all this fruit make it onto your menu at Birdie G's? There's so many options to choose from. How do you even know where to start? So we've approached our menu in a really kind of progressive way with the market, uh, not necessarily dictating the menu, but highlighting what we can with the structure that we've already created within the menu. For example, pear season has basically left us. It's nomas, and uh, there are oro blancos from JJ's Lone Daughter that we are substituting in a salad that is not changing at all. Just having that kind of interim of a seasonality switch with the oro blanco works in the same direction that that salad already has been produced to. Mm -hmm. uh, for desserts, we had an idea to replace something that had been on the menu to create it to be seasonal. It was not as impressive as what we had originally thought of, but we liked the idea to utilize different citrus all over the market to have a seasonal dessert. That's what stemmed into the creamsicle parfait. Okay, so you just said the words creamsicle parfait. Mm -hmm. Walk me through that. Creamsicle parfait was an idea based on a terrazzo pie, which we have on the menu as the world-famous rose petal pie. Now here's the thing with Centris, with an array of orange, with cream, you have a white background. It didn't have the wow factor visually as we had hoped for to replace the rose petal pie. 
So keeping the seasonality of it, we have all this citrus. We need a citrus kind of idea. It is our gluten-free option as well, because then we thought about the crust. I'm thinking, okay, well, if we set it as a gelatinous bowl, as a parfait, everybody like parfait. It just, it worked out beautifully, and it is uh, now on the menu. The looks are deceiving, I would say. Absolutely. It looks just like a bowl of parfait with what looks to be like uh, canned mandarin oranges on top, which is exactly what it is not. <laughs> so walk us through what the citrus component on top is. So we have in the bowl, actually chilled as a gelatinous cream mixture, we've been using JJ's Valencia oranges to juice and use that into a syrup to fold into the cream, the same technique that we make for the set of the rose petal pie. So there's a little bit less gelatin, so there is that cream texture to it, reminiscent more of like yogurt and parfait rather than having that structural pie slice. And then adding a little bit of orange blossom honey water to kind of sweeten it up. And then on top, we have two different types of citrus gelée that we make. We juice satsumas from Regeer and we juice karakaras from JJ's Lone. And we set them into jellies and cut them into cube pieces to lay on top. We also take the juice from the satsumas, turn that into a syrup, and we have the satsumas actually cleaned. We cleaned these ones. We didn't pack we cleaned these ones. We've what does that been. Mean? So there's an enzyme that you can sit peeled citrus in over about a 12 to 24 hour period of time and the pith connection on the outside falls completely off. And so what you have is instead of suppressing the citrus, that segment is actually cleaned. You have that kind of orange piece that everyone remembers from their own fruit cocktail. That's how you do that. Or you soak them in water and you take a bird's beak knife and you shave them, which I kind of find really relaxing and fun. And I like doing that. I actually did a bunch for New Year's Eve. So that to me is the technical part of making that element only what it is. Yes, you're soaking it in Cointreau with a little bit of Satsuma syrup, Yet it looks so familiar and almost childlike yeah, and simple. Exactly. And then the actual citrus powders could be a combination of yuzu, karakaras. All of the citrus we use to juice, we're zesting first to either turn into kosho or turn into syrups or utilize the product. That parfait really highlights the different techniques you can utilize behind one piece of fruit. Wow. Well, just this one description alone shows all the incredible things that you guys are doing at Birdie G's. Brittany, thank you so much. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> Brittany is the chef de cuisine at Birdie G's in Santa Monica, alongside Chef Jeremy Fox. Laura Ramirez at JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch is the farmer that Brittany gets her citrus from. And Laura, I'm wondering if you can just take us through all of the citrus you have this time of year. Maybe we can start with the smallest. Sure. And we'll go from small to big. So what we have, starting at the smallest, we have Maywa kumquats now. And those are really delicious. They are a sweet kumquat, unlike the nagami, which is a little bit more tart. The Maywa is just really good. They're a little bit seedy, but delish. And those are about the size of a big olive, I would say. They are, exactly. And I also have this time of year, which is my favorite, mandarin quats. Mandarin quats are a mandarin kumquat mix. Oh, so delicious. And you have to eat the peel because the peel is the sweetest part. I think that you would love it because it tastes very tangerine-y and sweet. And you can slice it thin in a salad or you can muddle it in a cocktail. Of course, we have to bring up cocktails. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's the spirit that goes best with that cocktail? Um, bourbon. 
bourbon. bourbon. Yeah, really? bourbon. Yeah, okay. it's really good. Muddled okay. like that. Almost like a old-fashioned. Yeah. It's just really delicious. And the next one I would say is the Taraco Blood Orange. Taraco Bloods are a little bit sweeter and they're not quite as red inside. They're a little bit more tie-dye-ish looking inside. And they, you can tell the difference between the Moro and the Taraco by the top of it. It has like a little bit of a nipple shape, kind of like a little bit of a pear on top. And then like, while we're talking about the Moro, that one is a very pretty. It's like a little redder inside and it's a little bit more zippy. All right, and then after the blood orange, we have a very unsuspecting orange, the Cara Cara. Oh, yeah, and that one's really great. That one is are my workers' favorite orange, and they, they say they call it the tutti-frutti orange because it's pink inside, and it really is fruity tasting. Something about it is just very different, very pretty, and it's, it's seedless, so it is a navel, and it's the Cara Cara. And so I always have to keep my workers away from those because they'll try, you know, that one in the Mexico avocado I grow, I re, they, those are their two favorite things. <laughs> and then after the caracaras, we're getting into the sour oranges. Yeah, yeah, sour oranges. So I have two varieties this time of year. I have the bergamot and I have the Seville. The Seville is like orange on the outside and the bergamot is really yellow. But the bergamot is really popular with the perfumers and the people that do tea, make tea and it's just really perfumey. It's nice on a cocktail also because then you can slice it and you can give it a twist. And the twist, it has this beautiful scent of this oil that comes out. It's just really nice. Hmm. And a lot of people like to make marmalade with it too, right? Oh yeah, marmalade is it. Marmalade, especially with the Seville's, are, are a big thing. Okay, and then after that, we get into the grapefruit and pomelo territory. Oh, yeah. You know, I have a wonderful one right now for the holiday, Valentine Pomelo. And the Valentine is really, you can't really describe it. It's just so sweet. I say it's a combination between Oro Blanco blood and a dancy tangerine. It's very beautiful on the inside. And they call it a Valentine because it's got like this heart shape to it. It's just gorgeous. Well, I always love to come to your stand and see what you have. Thank you so much, Laura. Oh, thanks so much. Always great seeing you. <laughs> that was Laura Ramirez of JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch. You can find her at the Wednesday Santa Monica, Saturday Santa Monica downtown, and Sunday Hollywood Markets. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. After the break, Patricia Escarcega drops by to review soul food Filipino style. Stay with us. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleinman. It's time for our weekly restaurant review with Los Angeles Times critic Patricia Escarcega. Hello, Patricia. Hi there, Evan. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to get enticed once more. <laughs> Where are we headed today? Today we're heading down to Long Beach to Bebot Filipino Soul Food. Okay, so, I mean, this explosion of new Filipino restaurants is kind of just awesome. Uh, who is behind this? It really is. And uh, this young chef, his name is A.C. Burrell. And if you follow pop-up kitchens around Los Angeles, you may be familiar with him. He's been doing a really popular uh, brunch series called Rice and Shine around Los Angeles. And I think we titled this review... Filipino soul food finds a home because he's he's been very peripatetic. He's been all over the place, and he finally has his own kitchen. That's wonderful. Is he specializing in old school dishes, or is he tweaking? Um, he gave me a really funny line. One of his aunties called his form of cooking millennial Filipino cooking. 
<laughs> which I think gives you a little bit of a sense. He's a, he's a youthful chef. He's playing with flavors that he grew up eating around the family table, but he's also having fun with it and making changes on the fly. The menu changes every single day. And the menu really reflects that kind of dual bifurcation. That's a good word, right? Bifurcation of, of self when you're a first-generation um, American. You have your traditional dishes, but you also have your you know, modern, new dishes that you kind of put the spin on older dishes. So when you walk in, you see the menu and it's divided into two halves. There's the old school Filipino dishes and the new school Filipino dishes. And um, there's really great stuff on both sides of that. I thought that the way you described the lumpia was a really good way of getting a sense of what he's doing. Yeah, so the lumpia, it doesn't look like a like what you would find at most turo turo type Filipino restaurants. The the ones where you walk in and there's kind of a um, a steam table. Yeah, steam tables, and you point to what you need to what you want at that moment. Um, his lumpia, uh, he kind of fashions it as this like long cigar like concoction, and it's chopped in half. It looks very. I would say kind of chefy, like it looks like something you would get at a, at his restaurant is fast casual, but it looks like something you might get at a at a sit down restaurant. If you're familiar with the stew sinigang, he uses the ingredients. So he has minced pork, rice, and vegetables, and he puts those inside the lumpia. So you get kind of two for one. I would say two dishes in one. Yeah, I I love that idea. Um, oh, and so we have to ask about the pork. What's he doing with pork belly? Uh, he's doing really wonderful things with pork belly. He's got his own take on pork belly adobo, which, as you know, every um, they say in Philippines, there's as many versions of adobo as there are islands <laughs> in the Philippines, thousands and thousands. Um, his is really great. He braises it in a coconutty broth, um, so it comes out really creamy. But it also comes out crispy. So he braises it, he roasts it, you bite in, and it's got really thin, crackly edges. And then the inside, you get kind of like that coconutty creaminess. It's really great. And everything there comes with a huge, I want to say it's almost like a volcano of rice. It's this huge hummock of rice. And he puts uh, beautiful whatever market vegetables are around, but usually you'll see like some watermelon radishes. Really beautifully accented dishes as well. And what about the old school part of the menu? Yeah, the old school part of the menu. One thing I think it's important to know about the restaurant is um, I talked at length with the chef and he told me a lot about his home life and his father who passed away a few years ago. Um, so a lot of those old school dishes are dishes that he learned from his father. He's got a great dish. It's called um, Dad's Glazed Barbecue Chicken. And uh, it's just a great kind of backyard grilled chicken with this really tasty soy garlic marinade. That's one of my favorite things he made. And then, of course, you've got pancit. You've got his take on it, which he kind of gives it a little Italian spin. It's got a carbonara-type sauce with some um, shrimp. And then he throws in some spam, and he sprinkles it with some chili flakes. So it's really, really bold cooking. You get a lot of big flavors. Is he still doing brunch or breakfast? He is. I would highly recommend you go on a Sunday, which is when he regularly does his brunch. And I think he might be expanding it. But for sure, Sunday mornings are the time to go for brunch. He has a great 
spin on chicken and waffles. And he uses ube, the purple yam, and he mixes it into the batter. So you get these really beautiful, thick, fluffy purple waffles. And then he puts um, this really great crunchy chicken pieces on top and this amazing um, homemade glaze. It's really a fun dish. And then I would also recommend you try his version of bibinka. It's a great dessert. He kind of um, takes a little bit of uh, a creme brulee approach where he torches the top with a blowtorch. So he gets, has this really nice crisp edge on it. Um, and bibinka is that, is that dessert that combines cheese and um, a, a sweet, like, custardy dessert. That's right, yeah. And his is, he puts um, the cheese on top with granulated sugar and butter. And let me tell you, Evan, <laughs> you take a bite of this and you immediately want to order a second piece. Yum. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Evan. That's Patricia Escarcega, restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. We've been talking about Baybot in Long Beach. That's it for our show this week. If you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, please leave a review if you like the show. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, and Desmond Taylor. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Kenny Ng. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Good Food.